Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Andrew Comoro. Andrew is a certified financial planner and certified neurodiversity professional. He's also the founder of Planning Across the Spectrum, a company based out of Connecticut that specializes in helping individuals, families, or employers of those with autism and other disabilities pursue financial independence. In this conversation, we discuss Andrew discovering his own autism as an adult, how autism affects his life, common struggles with financial planning that autistic individuals face, services offered by his team at Planning Across the Spectrum, alternatives to guardianship, and benefits of hiring neurodiverse staff. In this episode, discover what's possible when financial freedom is in your pocket. To learn more about Andrew and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Andrew Comoro. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. No, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Andrew Comero, uh, founder of Planning Across the Spectrum, help individuals, families, employers help, you know, financially successful in the future, which is probably about as boring as it sounds. But I was later diagnosed with autism and, you know, really tried to look at things from a competence base first and do a lot of advocacy, especially when it comes around money, financial literacy helping people plan for the future. Great. So let's first start by talking about you and your autism. You said you were diagnosed as an adult. How old were you exactly at that point? 28 slash 29. Okay. And what was that like for you to discover that about yourself at that point in your life? So at that point in my life, it, it was very mixed, right? For a little while, it was very amazing. And, you know, engaging in self-discovery in so many things. But then I there was a little period of time of almost denial or, or some disbelief and coming to terms with some of the understanding and, and almost like regret, like what if, what if I had known sooner? Like at the same time, so, so many things made sense, but then that also caused some sadness too. Mm -hmm. What led to the diagnosis itself? Were you referred to a doctor or were you seeing some signs? Yeah, I had, um, you know, I'm not against therapy. I always want to improve myself and I had not done it for quite a while and there were a lot of life changes. So there was a therapist in the building where I worked and I just walked down to the second floor and 
it was funny. I said, I, I would like a therapist. She's like, I can find somebody. I said, no, I want you. She said, I can't see anyone for a few months. I said, okay, I'll wait, which just thinking about it now is kind of a very autistic thing to do. And we were watching Atypical when that was new, the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I was joking with my therapist and even my wife too, that there were a lot of similarities, even just the job working at a computer store special interests like penguins. So there was just like common similarities in that regard. Mm-hmm. And my therapist is like, you probably shouldn't be joking. Hmm. Okay. And so I guess you were watching Atypical, so you knew what autism was. Or I thought I did. Okay. Got it. Did you always feel different growing up? Yeah, absolutely. From an early age, I felt being different and not boring was also one of the most important things that I could be too. But different and alone is different than just different, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What was it like for your family when you received the diagnosis? So a couple things come to mind. If we talk about me and my wife, she has a degree in psychology mm-hmm. and knows this and has you know, noticed autism and some children of our friends before they did. And so I, I thought there was a period where of almost disbelief of she must have been hiding it from me, right? Trying to hurt me. She knew I was and didn't tell me, which was absurd. You felt that way. It wasn't true. Okay. For a brief period of time, right? I think this was more kind of like Grief isn't the right word. It's not quite denial, but it. I guess it was one of those where when looking back, it being one of those kind of almost so obvious, it was like, how was it missed? Mm. It was probably just one argument, but so it's fun to joke about now. But there was some great discovery. My, my favorite example is I have or slash had the habit of not completing sentences out loud and just finishing them in my head and not being aware of that. I thought I said something that I never said. And my wife over time and habit completed the sentence for me in her head. Interesting. So because of my autism diagnosis, we realized that we had whole arguments between each other that we never had. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not good for communication. So something simple like, until we knew that, like our, and our relationship's a lot better and a lot of it is because, well, we're not having fake arguments with each other. Like, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for my other family and like my mom, she felt, I think, a, a little bit more guilt for not noticing it or the signs earlier. But I think at the same time, there, there was a lot of validation, too. Mm. In the end, it's overwhelmingly positive. In the beginning, I think it's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Are you receiving any support now? I mean, nobody lives completely independently, right? So I guess the question is, what do you mean by support? Are you seeing a therapist? Yes. Yep. Okay, great. And I mean, I think almost everyone could benefit from a therapist or somebody to talk to and just a third party. And also with so much of my advocacy work Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of what I do. And it's just helpful even just in general. Yeah. How does your autism impact your life today? 
I mean, how doesn't it impact my life, right? And just everything that I do, there's positives and negatives in the way that, you know, it impacts. And some of the negatives, you can get around, cope, right? Or just find strategies. Could you give an example? Yeah. I have a very big light sensitivity. So simply having, I think I'm wearing them now, the tinted glasses helps. Mm-hmm. Having dark light, windows, blinds closed, right? Plants don't grow too much in our house as a result, but, you know, for the most part. But that's a, that's an easy, you know, what everyone can kind of understand having a, or most people at least, have had, you know, a hangover or a bad headache, mm-hmm. right? So explaining, you know, the light hurts my eyes. There's certain sensory things that I can just stay away from, like cotton balls, like that, like feeling. So those are easy to stay away from, except if you get a bottle of vitamins, right? Oh, yeah. And then there's things that maybe aren't as easy. If routine gets thrown off a little bit too much in one day, I think it's all about realizing it and being able to come back to let's say normal or or baseline or the knowing the why is really helpful for then knowing how to address it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the positive impacts of autism in your life? It allows me to be very good at what I do. And from a professional point of view, it's one of those where I'm very good at what I do because of my autism. I never want somebody to work with me because I have autism, if that makes sense. It's Mm -hmm. why I'm good at what I do. And I think it's a way of looking at things differently, like to solve problems, patterns, and really diving in the details can be a really good thing as long as you can direct which details you're diving into. Mm Mm-hmm. Got it. Were you already a certified financial planner when you were diagnosed? I was. I was already a certified financial planner. So in a funny way, I I really liked diving really into the details. I really liked figuring out everything there was to know about the products, the investments, etc. And then that allowed people to ask me questions about what I love to talk about. But As I was growing in my profession, I wanted to specialize. That's very common. It's a good thing to do. And I I wanted to specialize in people who were like me, I thought. And before my diagnosis, I'm like, okay, I really like the complex. I like the analytical people. Most of my, quote, industry hates engineers, right? I'm like, I love the engineers, (laughs) Right. And I'm like, maybe I should specialize in engineers. Why does the industry hate engineers? Because they're analytical, because they ask lots of questions. If you're more from a sales point of view as well, right, you have people who are probably more time consuming, more detail oriented. And also, you need to be able to have the knowledge to back up right behind. It's almost a higher level, right? If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I I was, I'm like, okay, I want to work with people who are like me or who I like working with. And I looked at the people who I liked working with and they were all, they were engineers and analytical and 
I think not knowing I had autism, I think that's probably about the closest in general, not saying that, you know, all engineers have autism, et cetera, but, you know, just again, that technical, the mindset, the analytical looks like I was slightly onto something looking back at that now. Mm-hmm. You were just kind of gravitated towards that population. Yeah. So when did you start your company planning across the spectrum? Plan across the spectrum only two, three years ago. I still have my 10 path financial group, the traditional financial planning. It's the same company, it's me. But what we found was there's so much more than finance and insurance, right? The stuff that's out there on trusts and all that was just not what people had questions about. So I wanted to be able to separate and talk about a lot of what's not really financial planning. Mm. But then also, if somebody does want that next step, let's call it the boring part, right? The part that, you know, just to, to separate the content businesses, et cetera. And so I've been doing this for over 10 years. Okay. And why is this work important to you? So I can pay my mortgage. (laughs) No, it's, I always like money, finance, numbers, fascinated by the stock market, fascinated by supply demand from an early age. I took my bar mitzvah money. I bought stock in Palm Pilot. (laughs) And then I learned what taxes were, but I did sell it. So I did make money, I think. Mm -hmm. But and I like the joke that I'm Jewish too, so that um, I should probably <laughs> please cut that out. Anyway, uh, I'm pretty sure I said that during my interview at Prudential. Whatever, you could leave it. it that's a okay. <laughs> but I really like that I get to really help people mm-hmm. truly, and I get to solve their problems. And like I said, I get paid for people to ask me questions about the thing I love to talk about the most. Mm -hmm. So when you think of autism and just in general, like I I don't know if there could be a better dream job, right? Yeah, it's a perfect match. Yeah, I mean, and the other part too is a lot of the way I'm looking at things and let's call it a big strength of autism, right? Is thinking about things differently and solving problems. And I'm not a creative person. I'm not visual at all. I'm the complete opposite. I just realized there's a term for this. Like it's aphantasia, not being able to visualize anything in your mind. Oh, okay. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this describes me. This is cool. Could you talk about that a little bit more? I haven't heard of that. Yeah. So for example, and there's an image that I could share with you or I uh, can share it later, mm-hmm. but, and there was a, uh, I didn't know what it was until I saw somebody post about it. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is me. Wait, other people are like this. There's a few images. And then it's like, think of a horse. And then it shows a picture of a horse. And then it's, well, what did I see? Like when somebody said, think of a horse, right? And for me, it's just, I have an idea what it is, like almost like reading the words without seeing the words, if that makes sense. Okay. And I guess it's not 
uncommon, like 2% of the population. Uh-huh. But that was also interesting because I don't like watching YouTube videos, for example, to learn in tutorials. I'm not a visual learner. So you'd much rather read something or listen. Yeah. I, I can tell you some more information. I, it, it was super interesting. I'm just kind of discovering it. Yeah. I'm just amazed that I always thought, let's say a TV show or like a movie, like where they have, you know, like the dreams and the images in the head, right? Like this is all hyperbole, like an exaggeration, right? And sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. So when you think about memories or things that have happened in your life, can you recreate those images in your head? Absolutely not. Okay. In full disclosure, I realize this is me, but it's even new to me. So I don't necessarily have the best way to describe it quite yet. Okay. If that makes sense, like I, I'm actually pasting uh, for you. Thank in the you. Chat. A good FAQ I found that really explained it really well. Like I also thought I didn't dream, but I remembered things happening, right? Because again, if I, and I guess sometime, and I guess again, according to this, which seems accurate, some people do dream, some don't. But for me, it's like, like reading a book, dreaming, right? Like remembering something happened. Mm -hmm but not what it was. Yeah, got it. Is this typically a comorbidity of autism or is it just coincidence that you have both? You know, I don't know. Okay. It seems from the little bit, it's it's a little newer, right? Because it's one of those things where there's no way to test. Self-diagnosis is the only way, mm -hmm. right? There's no... You can't tell me what I see in my quote mind's eye, right? Right. So I guess because it's newer, I don't know if there's as much information. It does seem to be a slightly more prevalent in ASD or autism. But the other thing I've noticed is a lot of people with autism think in pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Again, Temple Grand thinking in pictures. And I feel like a lot of them are the complete opposite, yeah. right? With having the real big visual. And that was actually part of the reason why I thought initially I may not have autism, right? Like, I, I don't think in pictures, not even remotely. Like, I'm the complete opposite. So mm -hmm. for my little bit, it does seem a little more prevalent. Mm -hmm. Okay, Andrew, sorry, side tangent there, but I just wanted to ask a little bit more about that. No, it's fascinating to me, too. So, like, thank you. I, I wish I actually had those answers. Like, this is brand new like within a very short period of time to me. So. Yeah. Well, I'm sure as more research is done out there, we'll have more awareness of what it is. Yep. So back to planning across the spectrum, what are some common struggles that people with autism face when it comes to financial planning? So it depends. So first off, we have to define what is financial planning. Okay. Let's start there. Well, I don't have an answer to that. Okay. <laughs> so let's just talk about money in general. Mm -hmm or just finances, which is financial planning. But I say, let's define it because sometimes financial planning is investment management, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes financial planning is budgeting. Sometimes financial planning is looking at other, again, the big picture or taxes. Mm -hmm. They're all parts. But I think a few things that are unique are that 
I feel a lot of autistics are left out of money conversations. And that's something I'm working on helping with address, even within my financial planning community, is teaching and helping assume competence first, including them in the their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And the financial planners that I talk to who have clients, again, they're they're amazingly receptive. It's just not their world. So there was an example of financial planner consulted with me and from the sounds of it, you know, the individual kind of had a meltdown or something, you know, during a meeting. And when I said that from the sounds of it, that's not how the individual is all the time. Sounds like an overwhelming situation. I, from what you're telling me, they seem, you know, much more competent than that one meeting, like as a general rule might lead to believe. Mm -hmm. And there was a sigh of relief from this planner. He wanted to know that and believe that. So, you know, if I helped, again, even just kind of that one person, right, reframe and explain it in a way where he could understand, because how would he know that the one meeting where they got overwhelmed you know, if you meet somebody an hour a year, yeah. right? And that's the first time. And I've tried to release some information on ways financial planners can be more inclusive of everyone who's neurodiverse and just include them in the conversation. Mm-hmm. This is related to that paper that you said that you were working on? Yeah. And I've done a few other just articles for industry. There's a financial planning association that is including neurodiversity as part of their diversity and inclusion initiatives. Mm-hmm. And I'm helping with that. And it's it's exciting how open they are to the fact that there are things that we can do from a universal design approach, right? What should be good for someone who's autistic should be good for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's about finding what their strengths are. Yeah. Or, or just even asking. A great example would be communication. Mm-hmm. And in my industry, a lot of times it's pick up the phone, you know, like an email is, it's easier to tell somebody to go away by email and shrug them off. Mm. Or we are trained to not take people as seriously if they won't meet with us. But that's not necessarily the case with autism, right? I have clients I've never spoken to on the phone. That's not their preferred method of communication, just being honest saying what you're going to do, setting expectations, clear communication. Those are good things for everyone. Yeah. What services do you provide at Planning Across the Spectrum? I mean, I know that every case is different, but can you walk us through the process of working with your team? So there's so many different parts to what we do. There's the working with individuals the working with families, and then employers who want to hire individuals with autism and other disabilities. And all of those are very different. We also do a lot of things that are not remotely traditional, such as an event calendar with thousands of events around the the world and pay someone to maintain and find them. His interest was finding events and sharing them all over. And talking about autism and driving Mm -hmm. and, you know, encouraging presentations on that or having 
a job coach again available or almost like a a mentor available employee wellness if somebody i'm working with they like to do something my goal is how can i get them to do more of what they love to do that didn't describe my process at all <laughs> but if you want to narrow it down a little bit yeah so let's talk about for example an individual like an autistic individual who is looking for support with budgeting. Mm -hmm. I will say there's an app that I really like to recommend. It wasn't designed specifically for our population, but I find it works really well. It can help even like cancel things like that gym membership you can't get out of (laughs) and just lay things out in a unique way. I do a, a free open once a month, just live YouTube, two autistics talk money with another individual. And we try to keep it open to answer questions because a lot of times, I guess I'm saying a lot of that advice, I don't want to charge for, Mm -hmm. right? I want to like give away. I want to like help people. Mm -hmm. And so as a way to give away some of my time with the financial literacy and some of the basic and repeatable things, I take up a practical approach in that it's always better to do something than to have big plans and do nothing. Mm-hmm. A couple things I notice, especially about autistic population, is we seem to feel more shame in general around money. And when we're not necessarily good with money, I think we blame it even like internally, right? Or I see I have my clients where they think it's their autism that makes them not good at it. When in fact, they're as good, if not better than a lot of neurotypical clients surrounding money, finance, et cetera. We just, for whatever reason, right? And maybe it's because, you know, we want to know so much and there's just details and it's such a confusing field for everyone. So one of the first things I do is I encourage individuals to take some credit for, for where they are. And most of the time, they're doing better than they think they are. A great example is many people for the first time with the budgeting question will come to me and they'll be like, I don't have a budget. I say, good, great. I don't have a budget either. And then I get, huh? And the way I put it as an analogy is it's, it's hard to keep a strict budget and everything that goes in and out. It's not sustainable. So I really equate that to the strict budgeting and really keeping track is really important the same way as weight loss, for example. Hmm. It's not meant to be forever. A budget should be to then develop the good habits to do what you're doing consistently. So for example, many individuals who again exercise and eat well wouldn't consider themselves on a diet per se, with like keeping track of everything that they're doing. Mm -hmm. They know when they're doing well and they know when they're not, right? And if they have those good habits, they don't consider themselves on a diet, right? You may need one to get there. I think with money and budgeting, we need to look at it the same way, that the goal should be not to have a budget. The goal should be to develop habits, to automate as many things as possible because a budget can be a lot of work. We can run out of things to do in the day, right? And just 
executive functioning and just forget and it's last on the list and it gets behind and buried. So I, I find that's why it's important. That's why like I recommend this app called Truebill because it'll say, oh, you spent more on this month on this than last month. Okay. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I can spend a little less next month on this subject, this area, or here's your subscriptions that you have. Are there any you're not using? And we'll help you cancel them, which that's useful, yeah. right? Not categorizing everything. I said, I like people to keep it simple, like a go figure, a basic rule to follow. Yeah. Could you share an example of a success story of one of your clients reaching their goals? So I had someone reach out to me. It was a sad situation where there was a teacher for 24 years, uh, son autism. So we do work a lot with parents too at our firm and other planners or, or parents as well. And it was a sad situation where he had a terminal illness and in order to qualify for the pension, so his son, wife, daughter would get the pension for the rest of their lives. He needed to work 25 years and he was not going to make it 25 years. And they came to us again. They were trying to help with set all the things up and do all the planning that, you know, maybe should have been looked at a while ago, but obviously it's very important now. And I wanted to solve the problem of how do we fix this? Is there anything we can do? Mm-hmm. And there was a, a union rep. He was a, you know, a teacher for our state and the pensions benefit department. And I offered to call and I called and I said, well, I, I, I think, and I don't do a ton of work with teachers, but I have a few, right? And I think he can buy some years of service. For example, if he worked in another school system, right? And didn't pay into the pension, I think he can buy some service. And they said, yeah, yeah, no, he can, as long as he has some qualifying service. And I got the email this week and it was, he, they're able to do mm-hmm. it. He had some community college or some other teaching, right? Because usually again, teacher does some other things for some other school system and for $8,000, that's all it would cost for him to buy in for now 8,000 isn't nothing to you know but it's also that pension that he worked for for the re- for 25 years his wife and kid will be able to get that's huge and on one hand it made me so happy that i was able to help them in a sad situation but it was also validating and frustrating why didn't anyone else think about that mm. why didn't somebody look at the problem of can we get an exception he's going to pass away right? Like, or a disability or what are the options he has? I came at it from what are the options to get him those 25 years? And knowing from a client I met with six years ago that he bought a year of service, for example, as a teacher, I said, well, why, why can't we do that? Yeah. Anyway, so so that that's the example. I know it's kind of sad, but that that's my job. And right, but that out of the box kind of thinking helps this family so much. Yeah. So 
One of the services you offer is consultation regarding alternatives to guardianship, right? Yes. So first, could you explain what guardianship is for people who don't know? So I interchangeably use the terms guardianship and conservatorship. Mm -hmm. The reason is they're very state-specific. And from a technical lawyer point of view, there's definitely differences between both states. But as far as general public goes, I like to oversimplify. And I'm just saying, if I, I will mention generally guardianship and conservatorship uh, together. So one of things I'm very passionate about is if somebody is having their rights taken away, essentially, which is there's the free Britney movement, right? And that, that's that got some attention. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, conservatorship, which is why I, I use those terms interchangeably. Most, you know, there's definitely differences, but then there's also state specifics. It's very nuanced. I, that's why attorneys have a living. Mm-hmm. But what it is, is you're not assuming competence. So, for example, when an individual turns 18, I will hear a lot. That is, many times if a parent reaches out to us, it's when an individual is turning 18 Mm -hmm. because there's more things they should do, apply for, you know, help with lots of financial things. It sparks a lot of decisions. And I'll hear, well, I'm told I need guardianship or conservatorship. I say, so why do you need conservatorship or guardianship? And they say, well, you know, the doctor said we needed it so I could talk to the doctor. And I say, well, I mean, if that's the main reason, then you can sign a release, right? With through HIPAA or power of attorney, allow the parent to help and be involved in the decision-making process, but still ultimately leave it up to the individual. I like to remind parents of 18-year-olds that they're still 18-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. You know, plenty of kids want to play video games all day. But conservatorship slash guardianship, you're saying the individual is incapable of making their own decisions, their own choices. Not that they need help with making decisions and choices. I see. So my goal is mostly to just raise awareness that there is another option and to ask the why of somebody's doing what they're doing. Sometimes, though, it is warranted, right? Like, let's say someone is completely incapable of making a decision, then it could be a good idea. Absolutely. And I, I think that's also one where, again, when I'm talking to other professionals and that example where there was the meltdown in the conference room and that's the only time he knew, and they were actually talking about conservatorship, guardianship, he has a job, he has a 401k, he might need help going with some decisions. Who doesn't need help making some decisions in their life? Mm -hmm. We all desire to have somebody that we can reach out to for advice to help, you know, confidant. And that's what supported decision-making is, right? Mm -hmm. You are irrevocably taking away the rights of an individual and saying they can't 
do or own or sign anything or, you know, own anything. And I don't think there's ill intent of the people who are doing this, but that's why I always ask, what's the reason? And if it comes up a lot of times around money, I find, well, let's see what we can do to try, try to help. So a lot of times autism as well, there can be impulse, I think, spending quite a bit or that basic financial literacy that everyone should have was just skipped. And a lot of people aren't good with money. I think over half the population in the country, you know, doesn't have a thousand dollars in savings if an emergency came up. And in my mind, the way to help is to try people, we want to learn, right? We, we don't want to be left out of the conversations. We want to improve. But if we're not taught, like a lot of America isn't, how can we be expected to? Yeah. So taking it all away is should not be the first option. Yeah. Actually, when I was looking at your website, I saw this article that you wrote exactly about this topic. And you had said you know, when asking that question, do you want to make decisions for your child or decisions with them? And this statement really resonated with me because our motto at the Global Autism Project is do with, not for. And we apply this when we're teaching, when we're leading, when we're interacting with anyone, really, kind of assuming that competence exactly like you're saying. Yeah. And I love that article. I was very proud of it. And it was even within people who agree with me on the subject, they felt it was a little strongly for no conservatorship slash guardianship. But it's really just a, I get so many don't even know the other option exists. It's like, to me, it's a problem solving again. It's, well, what, what are you looking for? Why do you want it? And then what is the best option? And it's much easier to go more restrictive. Yeah. If needed but assume competence. Full disclosure, I was voluntarily conserved. You know, not being understood and challenges. I started kindergarten late because I had a speech delay. Again, how nobody suspected autism is beyond all of us. Mm -hmm. But instead of graduating at 19, I said, okay, well, let me graduate at 17 and go to community college. And then by the time I graduated high school, I'd have an associate's degree. And to me, that made all the sense in the world. I think my family was disappointed. Like, why do you want a GED? I'm like, I could have an associate's by the time I have a diploma. Like, again, rationally, it was just like, no, no brainer. But I also, from some of my troubles and other things, right, again, voluntarily conserved. So I also talk about that from a, you know, a passion uh, point of view as well. Mm -hmm. Over... 10, 15 years later, there's still things I can't do because of that one signature I signed voluntary, not, you know. So you're still conserved now? Nope. Haven't been for well over a decade. Okay. So you got out of it. It was very short, but there's still some things that let's say even I can't do because I've been conserved even voluntarily. I signed a form. From before? Yep. Within 20 years. Like what things? My Second Amendment. I, I can't own a gun. Okay. Which, by the way, is nowhere for the record. I don't didn't want one, but I, I mean, I, I just wanted to get a permit. Just The fee was going up, and I'm Jewish, right? So in Connecticut. So I kind of <laughs> wanted just to have it. It's so true. 
just for my own education and knowledge and safety, right? Too. I mean, that was really it. I want to do the class to learn. I like to learn. I knew my history. I didn't want to lie at all. And I didn't. And I'm like five years, you know, mental hospital or anything. I'm like, okay, well over all of this, well over all of it. And I, yeah, there's a federal law where even if it was voluntary for a day for 20 years, you can't do it. So I got my permit in the mail and I paid for all the classes. The next day I got a letter in the mail <laughs> saying there was like a, like a check in it, you know, I had to return it. Okay. And uh, I couldn't fight it because they wanted like letters from like a social worker and things like that. I'm like, this is a decade ago. Like, I, I don't, you know. So you have to wait 20 years, you're saying. That's at least one example. Well, residual, if you still are, there's obviously, you know, a ton more. Right. But I had a fun childhood. I was a ward of the state for many years. My parents didn't understand things. Anyway, complicated. But so when I, they switched over from the children's services to adult services, there is no plan. So it was check into this locked place and then they'll spend time and help you go somewhere or you're homeless. Mm. So I didn't really have much of a choice to sign a form, right? Yeah. How long were you there? A few months. It was more just like a transition, right? Like I got, you know, a job, went to community college, but because of that, you know, so a bunch of things I learned later. Did you have some behavioral problems? Was that the thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was just not understanding me, what I needed. And I was also a teenage kid, right? So mm -hmm. so I understand why this is such a passion project for you. If a parent were to go the supportive decision-making route instead of guardianship, once they're already in that process, what kinds of limitations might they run into that could be problematic? I think the one that we said earlier is that the individual is still the one who gets the final say. Okay. It's still the individual in the driver's seat, where with conservatorship or guardianship, it's the other way around. The individual does not have the final say. So you can't stop the individual from making bad choices. And even as a parent myself, of course, you want to stop your child or young adult from making bad decisions. But I also think, you know, people are also people, right? Autistic or not, but that, that would be the negative. The biggest negative is the bi biggest positive, right? Mm -hmm. They have the final say in their decisions. And I always think we should assume that first. Hmm. So, Andrew, many of your staff are neurodiverse, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And I know we talked a little bit earlier about your positives with your autism, but what are some strengths related to your staff's differences that make them valuable to your team? So I, I think the strength is in exactly what you asked. It is they have differences. It's that there are different ways of thinking and, and looking at things. And 
if you have somebody who has an intense interest for something that they love to do and you can help them do it, they're going to be phenomenal at it. So whether it's talking about driving or, you know, we have someone who's visual and likes the helps with the brochure graphics, the flyers, or for example, really likes the, the networking and talking with people. And again, not everyone's autism is an introvert. So, you know, he loves, uh, back when we had in-person events and things like that, loves just sharing and talking, networking, writing. I always hear about, you know, the autism in tech, but we don't have any of those here, right? So mm-hmm. there, it's just such a wide variety of strengths. It's definitely more about the reason someone likes to do what they do than what they like to do. And that's the part I really try to drill down with people. Mm-hmm. What can other companies do to welcome neurodiversity in their workplaces? So what companies can do is they can first realize that they have neurodiverse individuals already and that if they're doing something for neurodiversity and inclusion, they're not just benefiting their employees who they might want to hire. They're truly benefiting everyone, right? The individuals who are already working there. I think it really starts with not just doing it to check a box and not doing it for charity. It's not charity. You know, I'm very passionate about talking about how we should stop talking about the autism underemployment rate being high and how that's looking at a from a deficit first point of view. We're saying, here's all of these unemployed people. Here's what businesses should do to hire them. And we think of it from, you know, these employees are very valuable and I think it's the other way. I don't think they're taking the jobs because the value proposition isn't enough, right? The jobs aren't necessarily offering what we might be looking for. And there's some other obstacles too, but to phrase it in the way where if, you know, the employer is a for-profit company and autistic individuals are going to be good for a profitable company. When I hire somebody with autism, it's because they're the best candidate for the job, for what they do, and they happen to have autism. And that may be part of the reason why, if not the reason, they're good at what they do. Mm-hmm. But that is the qualification when I hire somebody, every one I've hired. But going back to what you're saying about not looking at the unemployment rate and focusing on the deficit, what about when people say that they are having a hard time getting a job, maybe because of the hiring process. Maybe they don't do well in the interviews because it's not in a autistic-friendly environment. Or maybe they can't hold the job because they're not requesting for accommodations, like those kinds of things. So from my experience, again, everyone is very unique. I think a lot of individuals pigeonhole themselves into wanting to work for a company that will hire individuals with autism. There was a letter on LinkedIn, I think it was last week, of you know an individual asking employers to take a chance on him, for example. And 
congratulations to the individual. Looks like he got a scholarship. He went viral. To me, that's the story, like good marketing, right? Mm -hmm. But it's more of a company that hires a lot of autistic individuals should be a, a company that maybe we want to strive to work for, but it shouldn't be what I think some people feel like is their only option if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? There's special education, there's special this, special that. In the nicest way possible, most of us aren't that special or the workforce doesn't care. And all of these initiatives, there's only so many jobs. A lot of them are focused. And there's so many individuals who have so many strengths. And I think it's important to find ways to showcase your value, your strength, your passion, Things like the interview process, you know, completely agree, hard, broken. Uh, there's some great people working on solving that problem. But we shouldn't feel that an employer has to take a chance on us. I think a lot of us sell themselves short. I notice this, especially when it comes to job coaching. So you asked how we're supporting people during the pandemic. And so one of the things we do is we have some individuals on our team who are autistic themselves and they'll help coach or work with individuals as well. And it's part of what we can provide. And there's what's called vocational rehab where the, the government has, can help like get a job and training. The biggest issue is a lot of it's retail job. They look at it from, again, looking at it from a different angle is, what company will hire this person? Mm -hmm. And not, what does the individual do? And how can we get them to do more of what they want to do? So I had that phone call and it was, he likes history and politics. I'm like, okay, not how can we get you a job at the supermarket? That shouldn't be your goal for the rest of your life. Talk about demotivational. And also, too, I don't think anyone loves a retail job, although I think everyone should work retail at least some point in their career. But, you know, look at not how can we just get the individual a job, right? How can we help them do more of what they like to do? That should be the question, not I get a lot of what company companies hire people with autism. And it's more. Well, what does the individual like to do? Like why? And how can we do more of that? Mm -hmm. So at that point, what are some action steps you guys do when you find out what they like to do? So what they like to do, why they like to do it is also important. Mm -hmm. And then try to help narrow it down a little bit to here might be some avenues to explore, to potentially network with to try and see here's what types of jobs might be available and, and here's what's needed. So if you like politics and history, something like, you know, a law office, right? Receptionist, you know, front desk or moving on up in something like a small employer law office could be very good, right? It's a lot of politics and history, right? Most lawyers have a degree in history. Mm -hmm. Most politicians are lawyers. So, yeah, that's something to take a look at. And they'll just excel at the job 10 times more than the retail job that's sensory overwhelming that they're not interested in. 
right? Yeah. So what are some myths about hiring neurodiverse employees? That it's charity, that you're doing them a favor, that you need to change a lot of what you're doing. So on one hand, I absolutely agree that there are things that should be done differently to be more inclusive, things like the hiring process. The hiring process is broken for everyone. It also affects the autistics even more. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is you need a special program. You need consultants. You need government incentives or that they're not going to be as valuable as your other employees when it's the complete opposite. So far, studies show that you know, they're less sick days, more tenure, right, at the company. Turnover for a company is very expensive, usually more on time, punctual. Again, some of these are a little bit of stereotypes, which, again, try to avoid the stereotypes. Everyone is completely different, but it's some of the common, I guess, myths, right? And that, yeah, I think there's a little bit that individuals can only do like tech or analytical. And the amazing part is at my company, I don't think any of us other than me who are autistic, you know, are are analytical. Mm -hmm. All right, Andrew, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to autistic individuals who are transitioning into adulthood or just starting to think about how they can be financially independent? I think it's very important to although it's good to plan for the future, to not do paralysis analysis, for example, and to small wins are wins. And small wins early on when you're just starting out have a huge impact of compounding over time. So the little habits, the little things that you can do to make a difference right? You don't need to do it all at once. I I say, do one thing, get that part right, and then move on. Small steps towards a big overall goal. Yeah. And I can give an example. I encourage everyone who turns 18 to get a credit card. And when I do this on presentations, everyone says, what do you mean? And a credit score matters for employment, matters for housing, even rental, matters for cars and car insurance. So it affects so many parts of your life. So I say, put your Netflix subscription on the credit card, have it automatically pay off every month, shred it, and start building that credit. If I wanted to throw out one tip that I tell every 18-year-old. That's funny because I'm just thinking back to... When I was 18, and I remember hearing that advice also, and it's kind of like a slippery slope, though, because you have to also be careful and aware of the dangers of having a credit limit. And I think a lot of young people, when they're not educated, or I guess, would you say financially literate? Is that the right way to use that term? Yeah. But they're, they maybe don't have experience with how to use a credit card. So I see what you're saying, and I agree with American culture. The credit score is an important kind of rating in determining your financial 
I guess, assets as you get older, you want to invest in things. But at the same time, I don't know, there's like a a warning sign that pops up for me too. Yeah. No, I agree. So that's why I say pick pick one expense that's really small that's every month. Okay. Have it automatically pay the balance in full and then get rid of the card. Mm-hmm. Okay, Andrew, how can people learn more about you and your company? They can go to planningacrossthespectrum.com. Probably the best. I'm on social media. I post a lot of my thoughts on things pretty regularly. So I encourage to go there and LinkedIn, probably most active. And um, there I go. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. With May being Mental Health Awareness Month, I thought it would be beneficial to highlight what Andrew said about autistic individuals sometimes feeling shame around money. Blaming oneself for a lack of money management skills can lead to anxiety and depression, both of which are very common among autistic people. Andrew encourages his clients to first acknowledge themselves for their present financial capabilities and maintain a positive attitude. Small and simple steps can go a long way towards bigger goals. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your experiences and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.